Hello, St. Luke's friends. I'm Evie Arnold of the Candler Foundry, and it's my pleasure to be with you over the next seven weeks as we delve into the gospel, which is your namesake, the gospel according to St. Luke. There's a special place in my heart for the gospel of Luke, as I'm sure there is for yours. And what I want us to look at, especially today, is what makes Luke so unique. We have four gospels, all that take their own particular portrait of Jesus, their own spin on the events of the early community that followed Jesus, and that was left in order to continue his ministry. What is it that Luke does that stirs us so, and that drives us and motivates us to the action that we take as Christians? So today, we're just going to talk about a few introductory things that will help us as we continue further into Luke's own gospel narrative. The first question we have is, who is Luke? Well, you might be surprised to know this, but the gospel according to Luke is actually anonymous. All of the earliest manuscripts do not have any kind of an author's name on it. It wasn't until probably 100 or 200 years afterwards that we first started seeing that particular gospel narrative ascribed to Luke. So we start seeing the gospel according to Luke as a title. Much time has passed after the actual writing and after those earliest manuscripts have circulated. So we don't even know for a fact that the writer of the gospel of Luke was even a person named Luke. Now, in order to nod to church tradition, which says that it was, and in order to talk about it effectively and easily, we will call this person Luke. And please also remember that just like there are many Lukes in our own day, I have several friends named Luke, there were also many Lukes back then as well. So even though we may have heard stories in the Bible of Luke the physician or Luke who is my companion being written by the Apostle Paul, we don't actually know not only if Luke wrote this, but even if Luke wrote it, which Luke that was. So we tend to refrain from making those, oh, the person writing this is Luke the physician, and then that's going to be the lens by which we look at his whole gospel. I would say let's step back a little bit and see what's there first, and then look at the themes that that brings up for us. Not only was Luke written anonymously, but we can also find out some things about this person because he's the only gospel writer to open his gospel with an introduction to his purpose of writing. Now, you probably skip over those first four verses, and I don't blame you because you want to get to the story that Luke writes. But at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the first four verses form his preface or prologue where he tells us exactly why he's writing, to whom he's writing, and what the reason is. Let's read it briefly, and then we'll see what we can discern about who this Luke is. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Thank you so much, Luke, for leaving us this piece of writing that gives us clues 
as to how we should read it. So what can we discern about who this Luke is? Well, not only do we not know his name, he never actually introduces his name, although he introduces who he's writing to, he does say that he was not an eyewitness to the events of the gospel in that early Christian community. He actually says that many people have written gospels of what they have received from those who were eyewitnesses. And he is in this category. He was not there, maybe not born, maybe not around or present when those early events were happening, such as Jesus's ministry on earth and crucifixion and resurrection. But he has received these stories from those who were eyewitnesses and who were servants of this movement of Christians. So what we do know is that Luke is a, more than likely a second generation Christian. He also says that there's also already been many gospels that have circulated. And we know for a fact after reading through Luke and how he uh, lays out his gospel that he follows Mark's pattern, that Mark is his source that he is getting most of his gospel material from. Therefore, he is definitely writing after Mark. He is not an eyewitness, so he's a second generation Christian. That helps us with the dating. If many gospels have already been circulated, Luke is probably writing somewhere around 80 or 85 in the current times that we're living in. What else can we know about this Luke? Well, he's definitely educated. This formal type of preface was seen throughout the Greco-Roman world as the, a proper introduction to a literary document or to a larger uh, written work. And so definitely Luke is placing himself in this very educated category. He writes in very elevated Greek, whereas Mark's Greek and John's Greek are fairly basic and rudimentary. The Greek that Luke is writing in here, which we don't even need to be able to know Greek, when we read it in English, it sounds very formal. It sounds very elevated. And so Luke is more than likely someone maybe in the upper echelons of society, certainly having been educated and has had the luxury and access to reading other documents like the Gospels and like other Greco-Roman literature that has this formal type of preface in it. Not only do we know that Luke has read these other Gospels, but he sees himself in the same line as them. Now, many New Testament scholars have seen this preface and they interpret it to mean that Luke is criticizing the other Gospels, that they are somehow insufficient or subpar and that he thinks he can do a better job. Well, that might be the case. But what Luke actually says in his words is that since he read all of these other Gospels, he decided that it would be good for him too for him as well to contribute. Now, to me, I don't hear there's something wrong with the other gospels. He certainly never says that in his preface. He's simply saying that he sees himself as part of this community of writers, part of this community of people that feels called, that feels responsible for telling the story of Jesus and the early Christian community in this written form. 
which I think is a very interesting thing for us to note, especially since you have been studying the Gospels and the different portraits of Jesus that we see in the Gospels throughout this year. These things don't necessarily have to be in competition with each other or elbowing each other out of the way in order to make themselves the best version of Jesus or the best telling of the gospel. Rather, there's room for all of these stories. There is room and space and welcome for these many different voices that all felt compelled to tell this story, to tell this story in their own way. And the last thing that we know about Luke from this formal preface is that Luke actually doesn't just stop with this gospel, but Luke later writes a sequel. Now, how do we know that from this preface? Well, it's just like the preface to the sequel written to the same uh, dedication as is Luke. The book of Acts, in the very first two verses, the writer says, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So because we have this preface that lets us know why he's writing and to whom, we can compare it and see that there's a very similar preface written to the same person and in the same style in the book of Acts. So even though the original documents may not have the author's name on it, we can conclude that both of these are written and not only written by the same author, but that this is an ongoing story. So as we're reading Luke, if you are hearing things that you think I might've heard a similar story in Acts, go ahead and trust your judgment because Luke parallels the two stories. The Gospel of Luke ultimately sets up the Acts of the Apostles. What you see Jesus do in the Gospel, you will see the Apostles do as the early church begins to flourish and spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world. So, speaking of the entire Mediterranean world, who is Luke writing to? Who is his audience? Well, we're told in both the preface to the Gospel of Luke and to the Acts of the Apostles that the person Luke is writing this for is Theophilus. Now, there's lots of theories about who this Theophilus is. And I think that it's interesting for us to look at two of those main theories. The first one is that Theophilus is a patron or a benefactor it's someone who is providing the resources, either money or space and materials for Luke to take on this large writing project. And this was a very common practice in the ancient world, especially if you were an artist or a literary writer or a playwright or something like that, you would find a patron who appreciated your work, who appreciated that particular type of artistry, and they would patronize you, they would fund you. Now, I think that is an interesting thought because it reminds us that this is a literary work, that it took time and it took research and it took funding, all those things that we know go into our favorite literary works. 
and the things that we respect the most as these conveyors of ideas and information, that is how we should read the gospel. That this isn't just a religious writing that's passed on, but it is a literary project. And it has the same literary artistry and expectations that we would look for in any other kind of book or novel or investigation that we would read elsewhere. The other possibility is that Theophilus is meant to be an abstract idea of a person. And I'll tell you why. The word Theophilus, that name, comes from two Greek words that mean lover of God. So that could be someone's name. Theophilus could be an actual proper name of an actual person that might be Luke's benefactor. Or, or maybe they could both actually be uh, true, is that Theophilus means Luke is writing to anyone who loves God and who wants to love God more. If you are reading this gospel, you must love God and want to know more about it. And so Luke is connecting with his audience as people who already love God. Now, we actually do have some evidence for that in this preface that Luke writes. Notice how after he says uh, that he's writing this for the excellent Theophilus, he says, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have already been instructed. What does that mean? That means that Luke is intending this to be read. This particular gospel account is being read by people who are already familiar with the gospel and people who have already been taught those things of the early church. So in some sense, this isn't a strictly evangelistic writing, meaning that it's for people who don't know the story, although I'm sure that Luke understands that there will be people who haven't read it, um, that this will be the way that they come into that community. But he's intending it to be something for people who already know the facts. They already have all those necessary pieces of knowledge about the gospel events. They Theophilus already knows who Jesus is and who the disciples were and that Jesus was crucified, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, and that the church is continuing the mission that Jesus began when he was on earth. Luke is intending that people who are reading his version of the gospel already are familiar with that, and more than likely already believe those things to some extent. But that brings us to our third question. Why is Luke writing? Well, he also gives us that information. He says, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard, he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Now that word in their truth is a little slippery, and I'll explain why. In Greek, that word is asphalia, and it can mean truth, but more often than not, it really means something more like certainty, security, assurance, or safety. Now, notice something about all of those words, all those ways of translating that word. 
certainty, security, assurance. All of those words are emotions. Those are words that describe how you feel. Not necessarily what you know, but what you feel about what you know. Luke is writing his story in his own order and in his own way in order to to produce an emotional response to the gospel. And that's a little different than just writing in order to tell people about what happened. He wants Theophilus to feel a certain way about those facts, for them to come to life in such a way that he is impacted. We might say that this is a formation goal that Luke has. He's attempting to grow and develop what's already there. So think about when you are a child in school or even an adult in graduate school. You're building on what you already know. And each year, each course that you take grows the knowledge that you already have. We know that human beings, from the moment that we are born, we begin knowing things. We begin learning things. And so we don't ever have to establish knowledge, period. It's just always there. We simply add to it and grow it and develop it. We nuance it. We expand it. But it's something that is already present. Well, Luke takes that for granted that this lover of God already has the facts, but wants to grow those into something even more sustainable, something even more beautiful and something even longer lasting than a mere assent to the facts. In fact, when we look at Luke's preface, we, we actually see that Jesus is never mentioned. And why is that? He said, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. So now, yes, it's about Jesus, but mostly it's about us, that this particular writing that Luke is doing is meant to form an identity. It's meant to shape an identity. These are the things that have happened to our community. The people who claim to follow Jesus as the Messiah, these are the events that we point to, and these are the things that have actually happened in our own communities. Not only when Jesus was here on earth, but Luke says, have been fulfilled among us, all of us. Even after Jesus is no longer present on earth, the community is still seeing fulfilled events, still seeing God's presence and God's activity in the world. And Luke wants to shape Theophilus's identity that he sees the world in that same way, through the lens of God's fulfilling promises, of God's ongoing activity in the Christian community. And so I think that that is such a wonderful place for us to begin this conclusion of your year-long study of the Gospels by bringing it all back to the fact that what does this Jesus and this community and these documents written by them, how does this shape our identity? How does it invite us into the story so that we might invite the story into us? and allow it to be the lens 
through which we see the world and which we can also identify the ways that God is moving and working and inviting us into that same partnership as this early Christian community. And so I am excited to be with you over the next few weeks as we begin to look through this gospel, notice its richness, and praise God for what we find. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you in our next time together. Hey there, family. Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke, specifically our office hours portion. We're here with Dr. Eby and all four of your pastors, and we are beginning to study the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to jump right in with that. All right. So uh, I'm thrilled to be back with y'all, as yeah. always, and to be talking about arguably the best gospel with the best Jesus. Eby's <laughs> mm-hmm. e- a bit biased. Just a little bit. Just sure a little bit. Yeah. Yes. It's our namesake. It's we feel the same way. Yeah. But we want to celebrate because we, we have gotten to walk with you through final finishing all of your doctoral work, and mm. now you are Dr. Eby. I think you were the last time we talked to you, but just to again celebrate, you're Dr. Eby because Thank of the you. things you're going to talk about today. Yeah, because, because of the gospel. <laughs> of Luke. Mm. Right. And you marked us and now we're you're luking us. I am now luking you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I find myself luked and re-luked all the time all and the time. I just love we it. Are gonna so. make it a, it's gonna, Luke is going to be a verb by the end of that's this. That's right. Yes. <laughs> we are changing the English language. Here we go. Well, but I think it's really fitting though because today we're talking about sort of how we connect to this gospel and the emotions that it produces. And so of course, you know, for y'all, this is the the gospel your church is named after. I for me, I did my dissertation in the Gospel of Luke. So, of course, you know, it's appropriate that we all know that we have this emotional connection to a gospel that tells the story of Jesus and the early community in a way that none of the other ones do. Mm. Um, I love that Luke has so much unique material. This is where we get the shepherds and the angels. It's the only one of the gospels to have the, it's the only uh, ascension story that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. uh, people like the Good Samaritan, um, these are something that we only get from Luke. And so I'm just, I am feeling that emotional response. But when we look at that preface um, that so many people skip over, I know it's not part of the story. We want to get to the the juicy stuff. But in that preface, Luke is writing to his, we don't know if it's a a patron, patron, excuse me, that is funding his writing or he calls him Theophilus, which in Greek just means lover of God. Mm -hmm. It could just mean you, Theophilus, your actual name, um, thank you for uh, funding this gospel writing, or anybody reading this who loves God and wants to love God more, you know? And so I think it's it's fitting and appropriate for us to take it the second way. We are lovers of God. We are lovers of Luke's gospel. Um, and so he invites the reader to read the story of Jesus, but he says, you already know it. He says, these are things about what you've already been taught, and I want you to read it, and it produce an emotion in you. Um, Sometimes it's translated um, security or uh, certainty or—but it's always a feeling about the story. And so what I want to know is how does our emotional response to the gospel story relate to the meaning of the gospel story? You know, what—how do those things go together? 
I, when you say that, it makes me think of how we frame ourselves as a church. So going back to our sort of namesake piece is that we don't pretend we're the only church in the world. Mm. We don't pretend we're the only people telling the story. We don't pre- pretend that you've never heard these stories before. Some people who, who come have not, um, but that we like to think that we do have a different approach in some ways um, at some times and and that, that you might have a little bit of a different feeling in some of the ways that we are sharing and, and telling the story in this moment with this group of people. Um, so I think there's there's a connection there of, of feeling as something we do want people to experience as a result of meeting Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an interesting self-awareness aspect of this gospel too, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's aware of itself. It's where we're, we're situated in the rest of, of the, that landscape. That's a great observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then what does that mean for us as people who are becoming more aware of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we talk about people that are part of our church as St. Lucas and how they identify themselves. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of yourself? And, and then are you aware of yourself in, in this gospel story? I think it's a powerful way to begin. And it's an interesting way to begin. I think it's a very Wesleyan way to begin. Mm-hmm. I think a, a Wesley really, you know, depending on who you who you read and how you understand, we're supposed to come to the scripture with our reason. Well, our reason changes. We learn more and more and more as as we go. Uh, we come with our tradition. We come with um, our understanding of our experience. My experience changes every time I read the scripture and the Holy Spirit meets me there and goes, you know, this word or this <clears throat> sentence meant one thing to you and you read it through this lens. Now let's read it through this lens of this experience you've had, of this new understanding you have about the world around you. And so it's, and I always go back to John Wesley having known the scripture so well, and then his heart is strangely warmed because he, the Holy Spirit was ready to work on that aspect of his life um, and use scriptures and use a scripture that he knew from, from childhood most likely. But the way it was preached, the context it was preached, the, the history of who he was, it brought it to life in a whole new way. And I think we, we forget that and we tune off. That's why I, that's why I struggle sometimes when we, we – recite rote prayers in worship um, in the same inflection. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I always get quiet or do different inflections because that week, the Lord's Prayer is going to mean something different than it did the week before. And I think that's true with Scripture too. Mm. When I think about the correlation between um, emotion and meaning in the gospel, it takes me back to childhood. uh, Being, of course, raised in a Pentecostal tradition, um, there was this expectancy that when you truly experience the gospel, there will be this this huge emotional outpour, Mm -hmm. right? And so in that context, the depth of emotion, the, 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 the largeness of the emotion denoted that something actually happened, right? The meaning was that you had actually seen and felt and experienced Jesus, right? Uh, yeah. And while in other traditions, emotions are suspect. Mm-hmm. Right. That, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I mean, it was something that uh, a campus ministry I participated in that shall not be named um, <laughs> used to talk about feelings being the thing that, that, that come along that is, is, is your, your uh, part of yourself that you need to get rid of mm-hmm. to fully understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. That if mm-hmm. you are letting feelings drive the bus... Mm-hmm. That that your feelings are are always something you have to be wary of. That your feelings are the things that you have to set aside to be able to know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I don't understand that now. I still don't understand the, 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 the idea that emotion is not part of it and the fact that we have here in print in, in a gospel, mm-hmm. you know, um, to say feelings are actually part of this. It's part of our humanity. It's part of the fullness of who we are and an interpretive lens. Yeah. That, that's, that's so well said because one of the things that I, I hear in that is that if it's part of you, Yes. If, if if there's something that you are contributing, you have somehow polluted the gospel. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is the antithesis of what's going on here because mm-hmm. Luke says, I read this gospel. He said, other people have written it. Mm-hmm. And he said, and so I thought it good for me too to contribute right. what I have. Right. <laughs> so it means that we're not, it's not that we're in competition with who has the right, the pure, the unsullied version of the gospel. Rather, it's this community where everyone contributes what they have. Mm-hmm. It's like making this wonderful gospel soup, you know, right. where you just throw what you have in the pot and we trust the Holy Spirit stirs it up and everybody gets something out of it. And right? it's even why we have four gospels, right? right? That's, 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 <laughs> I mean, I, 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 again, literary person, look at the way things are written and compiled, early on someone said, we need four accounts of this mm-hmm. beca- because of everything we're just talking about. Yeah. And and that was an, an intention with, with the early church. So you want to talk about tradition. Tradition is multiple versions mm-hmm. of a story. It is not More one singular, literal uh, way of understanding something. So Yeah, absolutely. Because And it's important that we remind people that Luke doesn't say there's anything wrong with the other Gospels. No. Nope. He's, he doesn't say, in as much as other people have written this down, I noticed where they got it wrong mm-hmm. and felt I needed to correct them. And that <laughs> is and, and that is so often what we see in, in theological history at times where right. or, or even preachers now sometimes mm-hmm. of saying, you know, I've seen that that we we were wayward, we missed the point and so we have to we have to repair this rather than we have to hear what we need to hear now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if 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 there is something that we ever preached that might have changed, you know, over time, Wesleyan's over time uh, evolved and continued to grow and it's it's not about correcting a mistake, sometimes it is, but some, more often it is about recognizing the evolution of of our community and what our community needs are at that moment. Mm. So what were what were the needs of the community in the Gospel of Luke? What was what was that? Well, Luke is definitely writing to a really broad audience, probably broader than any of the other gospel writers. Um, now remember John hasn't been written at this time. Um, right. he, he gets written uh, probably a decade or so after Luke does. Um, but you know Mark uh, is writing to a pretty localized, Group and Matthew is writing to a pretty, um, pretty um, specifically Jewish Christian audience. Mm-hmm. Luke throws the doors wide open to the whole Mediterranean world. He writes in this much more elevated Greek, um, and his story, um, more than any of the other ones, really opens up the gospel to. Gentiles and to populations that have not been represented in that Christian literary landscape yet. Um, Luke is one of those gospel writers. Um, He's the only one in the New Testament that is supposed to possibly be Gentile. Hmm. Now, it's it's not for sure, and I am not completely convinced, Um, but he's the only one that there is that possibility. And so 
Just the fact that it's a possibility, though, means that this is being written in a different way to a much wider, much more blended audience, mm -hmm. probably in farther, more remote places than the other Gospels. This mm -hmm. is probably going all over. Mm -hmm. um, just like that, the Gospel will go in Acts, I, I, th I think we start to see that Acts is sort of the literary version of what happened to the Gospel of Luke. It went all over the place. But what I, I wondered was um, this notion of telling that story, you know, in your own way, that he noticed that there was, okay, we've got these other gospels, and they address these populations, and they, they pick up these themes. He's like, and so I, too, thought I needed to write because I want to actually have this theme, and I want to push this forward, that the gospel is written for the whole world, for all humanity, and I need to get that out there. And we're talking about how we tell the gospel story. What gives us that confidence? Like, mm -hmm. where have you found the confidence to use your own voice in telling that gospel story? You know, I keep thinking as you're talking about, um, Dr. Jackie Lewis talks about how we get storied, that, that, that the gospel stories us and tells our story, and, and then therefore our stories become gospel stories as a as a link to that and that there's you find your voice in it because it's this ongoing it's not static and and neither is my life and so there's this continuity of of we're walking alongside this book together and I'm in it and it becomes a part of me and it becomes a part of me that then I go and story out into the world. And I think we forget that. I think we sometimes as disciples read this and we read it as a historical, um, like you said earlier to us, a linear thing. Um, and and we, don't, we don't actually see that, that this is who we are and that, that this is a continuation. Our faith journey is a continuation, especially of, I would think, for me, of what Luke and Acts is doing, because it's a constant, there's no ending to any of it. And so I keep it going and it gets storied in me and then I story it into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's permission giving is what allowed that for me, that, that, a little bit like we talked about before, there's not just a gospel, and we've been talking about this since January, and because of that, there's permission to be creative, there's permission to be prayerful and be shaped and not just in a mold, but be shaped in, in your life. And so for me, it, it was that permission giving of it's not static, it is dynamic, there's so much more happening, and, and that permission giving allows... I think for the Holy Spirit to work and to be more creative and to interpret and to push up against and share ideas. And I've never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. What an interesting parallel. Mm -hmm. And that shapes and helps me as opposed to like, we just need one gospel and one way of understanding this and one audience and one voice and it's so monolith that so many people desperately want, but again, it's not what we have here. Mm -hmm. And so that's hard for people to make that transition, um, but it's, it's permission giving to be creative, to be interpretive, to be faithful. Um, yeah. I was blessed from an early age for my home church and camp experiences and that very much talking about the concept of calling. And I think that is in a lot of what Jen is talking about too. And I think that idea of calling is is wrapped up in the 
the frame, giving giving us a framework that God is still moving. Um, because again, Scripture can be framed in unhelpful ways that it is again monolithic and finished. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, and and the idea of calling has requires a caller and requires a caller that is active in your life and in the world. And and if you if you frame life in the concept of calling and you frame scripture in the concept of calling and you can ask the question of how were these people in this text being called and you start to 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 dig down into that it makes it easier for you to see the same god that was moving there moving in your own life mm-hmm. and while my life may never be written down in a way that thousands and millions of people read it over history mm-hmm. That does not mean that my life is not uh, the the same story and that my life is not insignificant. And I think so often people think that they are Mm -hmm. secondary, tertiary, or maybe not even characters, maybe background characters at best Mm -hmm. in God's story when God actually has a gospel to write through every single one of us. Because Mm -hmm. if we truly believe in the Holy Spirit and we truly believe in the depth of that, Mm -hmm. then we can recognize, as we have been talking about the importance of leading our life because we all have gospels to write. So it's so fascinating as you two are talking because I realize that part of it is we read this story to learn about Jesus and accept what Jesus did and then Jesus is and and then we put Jesus in a corner. Okay, yeah, I accepted thanks. what you did. Right. And so I put Jesus on a shelf because Jesus is no longer you with us. <laughs> right, right. As if Jesus is not constantly storying us today. Mm-hmm. So we need And so- Jesus is, it, it, it really, it's not just the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus mm-hmm. being alive with us today. It's mm-hmm. resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't, I think we... We check it off. I believe in him, so I'll get to meet him after in in salvation and eternal life. And between now and then, it's just me. Yeah, and and the funny thing is when we talk about the response and the meaning of the gospel, that the idea that it's just about me now couldn't be farther from the gospel meaning itself. (laughs) Um, Which is why, you know, listening to what you were saying, Melissa, I I so agree with that because when when I think about what gives me confidence and permission is I think about responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like you said, sometimes when we say, oh, well, what I think doesn't matter, and we think that that's somehow being like demure or, you know, humble— um, that's also a deflection of responsibility. Yes, um, yes, it is. Because what if I say what I say doesn't matter? Then whatever I say has no consequence. And um, you know, it's funny because people think that we've got academic life over here and spiritual life over here. But <laughs> one of the things that impressed me the most on this was actually in my academic studies, looking at how the ending of Luke Acts. Um, especially since this lecture, we're talking about the sequel. The ending of Luke Acts has often been interpreted. Um, to be very anti-Semitic, that mm. God is done with the Jews mm. and has moved mm. on and the church replaces the Jews. Right. Yeah. And, uh. and when people unquestioningly do not respond to the text and have their own voice offering a telling of the text mm-hmm. in a way that they believe honors God, um, the, the place where we saw how that kind of interpretation can do damage is how it fueled the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And people all of a sudden who were just biblical scholars, just preachers, or even just good Christian people sitting in the church thinking it doesn't matter how I 
tell this story, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden realize, oh, it matters very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we can't afford to say, I don't matter when we all contribute right. to things that cause, um, can either cause life and flourishing or can come. Right can cause devastation. Right, and that's true on like a huge level, but also on like a little microscopic level. Because yes. I was thinking that the thing that gives me confidence is the way that I see um, the interpretation and speaking into how the speak- gospel speaks to you operating on a communal level. Mm-hmm. So like you have these experiences and you're shaped by the gospel and uh, uh, it kind of creates for you a puzzle piece for your journey. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? A puzzle piece that fits in. This is the the picture that goes in this place in my journey. And then you talk to other people in other places on their journeys and they they seem stuck or they seem frustrated. And you say, well, this is the puzzle piece that worked for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it'll work for you. But then it does. And that's, and we just continue to like pass that on. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's it's true on that big level of of, of keeping ourselves safe from, from Christianity being used as a force of oppression. Mm-hmm. But also just on that, I need your story to help yes. my story keep going. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we just closed our production of Oliver, which... Essentially, if you came to see it, you probably didn't walk away super uplifted. <laughs> it's it's not a show that that made you feel really really good at the end, um, in, in the way that certain shows do. That that you know, tied up in a bow. it doesn't get tied up in a bow. Most of the issues that it presents are not solved by the end. Um, but that's kind of why we did it because so often you can come and see, you read a story, watch a movie watch a play, come to, to enjoy someone else doing something, <laughs> and then walk away and go lead your life in a different, in, in, in the same way you did before. But this production kind of requires that same kind of response to walk away and go, okay, now I have to do something mm-hmm. because now I know. Um, and so I think that, I hear that in that Luke preface is, I'm going to tell you so you can't not know anymore. Right. And because you now know, mm-hmm. you if you don't do something, if you don't feel something as a result of this story mm-hmm. and change something about how you are responding, mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't grasp what I and so many other people are trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what we try to do as a church is to tell the same story as Jen says, you know, we do Holy Week every year. You know, Jesus is going to be born at Christmas. He is going to die on Good Friday and he mm-hmm. is going to resurrect on Easter. Mm-hmm. But what are we doing now with that same story? How are we hearing it in this moment? And how are we hearing it as a as a call to then do something? And that is so true with Oliver as an example. Like if you watch Oliver and you don't have the impulse to run up on stage and give Oliver a hug or <laughs> yeah. any of those chi- or any of those yeah. children or to try to fix something, but you, you find yourself stuck in the viewer perspective and you should feel a little helpless and unsettled by yeah. that helplessness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If it doesn't if it doesn't inspire you to go out and do something about people who are actually in this situation, what have we said about I don't know. Our reviewer like, said you asked that question of should I be enjoying this? He got it. Like yeah, yes, that is kind of the question. Yeah. Should you actually be enjoying this yeah. or we hope that you will enjoy it, but that at the end of it, you'll then feel like you need you need to do something. Which leads us to what comes next in next week. 